Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, by now, it is a very poorly kept secret that I I want to be an education historian. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, the initiation rites are only administered once every 10 years in the secret uh, lair of education historians. So uh, you missed it. It was two years ago. And so in 2030, if you can figure out the undisclosed location, then uh, and you have like the robes and the wand and and all that, then uh, then we can talk. Well, when I travel around and hit the road on my own, I do kind of try to pass myself off as an education historian. <laughs> but then what typically happens is that I can I can maybe answer one question, but that second question almost always trips me up. I think we're out of time now, uh, but it was great being here. Thanks, Des Moines. Well, working on these episodes and getting to meet the winners and the runners-up of our graduate student research contest in particular has given me insight into a field that I also really wish I had known about back in the day. I want to be an ethnographer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also have ethnography envy. Uh, I remember being an undergraduate in college and taking my first anthropology class and then completing an assignment, hiding under a desk where people couldn't see me so that I could take field notes. It just felt like really exciting. It was much more like the detective work that I had once aspired to do when I was, when I was a youth. Although, you know, historians are detectives in their own right. Well, as close listeners may have picked up on, this is the second in our two-part graduate student research contest series. Our most recent episode featured the winners of the contest, and today we're going to be hearing from the runner-up. Yeah, every year we've picked a runner-up uh, to go along with, or in one year, I think we had two runners-up, uh, uh, and... And there is no shame in second place here. Uh, I think those episodes stand up just as well as the episodes with our winners. So really, everybody who appears on this show is a winner. And I'm just so delighted that, uh, that we get to introduce Corinne Kentor's research uh, here to listeners of the pod. I think people are going to be really excited about it. And I'll never miss the opportunity to make a pitch for entering our graduate student research contest, which we will be making an announcement about soon. Almost everyone who appears on the show is a winner, Jack. Almost. <laughs> Now to the main event. One of the most exciting things about the Grad Student Research Contest is that we really never have any idea what kinds of projects our entrants will bring to us. And when we read about the work that Corinne Kentor is doing, looking at how students who grow up in families with mixed immigration status understand and experience higher education, we wanted to know more. Starting with how Corinne, who is a PhD candidate at Teachers College, Columbia University, got interested in this topic in the first place. 
when I was in college, I was a parent liaison at a dual language school. And so I spent a lot of time working with immigrant mothers and got to see how they kind of pushed policy forward in their communities without ever being recognized for that work because they weren't moving through traditional political frameworks. They weren't able to vote. They weren't able to run for office, but they were really involved in their kids' schools. That observation would take Corinne to grad school and into the field, as ethnographers call it. She spent a couple of years doing work with mother advocates in South Central Los Angeles, and she noticed something interesting. While I was working with them, I did a lot of my field work at a preschool that doubled as a parent organizing center. And I ended up as a Spanish speaker, kind of swapping in and subbing for some of the preschool classes when the teachers were ill. And at the end of the day, the people who were picking up the kids in my class tended to be their older siblings. And I'm a very friendly person and also nosy as many anthropologists are. So I would chat with the older siblings when they showed up to pick up their younger siblings from school. At the same time, these older siblings would be telling me about their own plans for after high school in most cases, which often involved going to college. And many of them had dreams of moving away from home for college. And I had a lot of questions about what was going to happen when they actually pursued that. Corinne originally planned to do her fieldwork on Long Island, starting in, wait for it, March of 2020. Not an ideal time to start a school and home-based ethnographic research project. So she went home, back to California, where her own family suddenly needed her. Right around the same time that the pandemic hit, my father was diagnosed with ALS. Given the restrictions on travel and my own concerns about my family's health and the implications of contracting COVID across the country, I ended up basically moving my entire project out to Los Angeles and specifically out to the San Fernando Valley where I grew up. Thankfully, I had a really supportive committee that told me to take the time that I needed and to make whatever changes were necessary for my own life and my family. So I took about six weeks off, I would say, just to figure out what I was going to do and then was able to relaunch a very similar project back in California. Now, as I admitted at the start of this episode, I have recently decided that I would like to be an ethnographer when I grow up. But what is ethnography exactly? One of the jokes that my friends from grad school and I often share is that being an ethnographer is being a kind of professional hanging out. You literally put yourself in places, you spend a lot of time there, and you try to understand both what people tell you about their lives and also what they do in their lives. At the same time, because ethnography is this sort of immersive discipline, It's not just about seeing and listening, but also about trying to collect different forms of evidence. So this might be everything from photography to documents to pieces of music or sound. All of that is a part of understanding how people are moving through different spaces as they go about their lives. And as Corinne hung out with students who were part of mixed status families, she started to see the world as they did, a world that's shaped in complicated and often constraining ways by the intersection of education policy and immigration. If you're growing up in an area like California that has relatively progressive policies when it comes to access to higher education for immigrant students, you're more likely to stay in California simply because of the financial reality. In California, you're able to access state-level tuition for in-state schools, and you're also able to access state-level financial aid. If you're an undocumented student, you are not able to access federal financial aid. So you're really dependent on that state-level aid and on private funding and institutional funding in order to kind of feasibly afford your college education. But even within that kind of constraint, there are other factors to consider. Even if you're able to afford going out of state, for example, 
there can be real dangers if you are undocumented or if your family members are undocumented in trying to travel across state lines. And so even if a student is a citizen, there might be concerns about their family being able to visit them at college. That doesn't necessarily preclude them from enrolling, but it does exacerbate some of the loneliness of moving away from your home if your parents and your siblings literally can't come to see you because there are concerns about travel. One of the things that I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you and reflecting back on your study is the research literature on college matching, right? So specifically, the research literature that examines what are the factors that lead to students picking the best possible match for them when selecting a college or university. And of course, this idea of a best possible match most often plays out in an analysis where right, there's a best possible school, right? That there's a, there's a right college or university, and that right college or university is the most selective one that you possibly could have gotten into. And this research literature suggests that many students, quote unquote, undermatch. So they choose a college or university that is not the most selective school that they could have picked, therefore not the best school they could have picked. And I, I'm just thinking that you don't see things quite this clearly. Um, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the factors that lead students to undermatch, to use the language from the research literature, and maybe talk a little bit about the extent to which I'm guessing you think that that's really not the right way of thinking about this. Thank you for this question. This is one of my favorite things to talk about because I think that undermatching implies that there are better schools and worse schools and that better and worse aligns with selectivity and something that you might find in college rankings, for example. Whereas I don't necessarily think that that is the best way to define what the right fit is for a student looking to pursue higher education. I also think that the literature on undermatching does really tend to reinforce relatively elitist frameworks about what makes for a good post-secondary destination for a student, when in reality, any type of ranking will not reflect the extremely high quality of education that students get in all kinds of institutions. At the same time, there are very real concerns and constraints that will shape the decisions that somebody makes about where to go after high school. And location is definitely one of them. Take, for example, the whole question of leaving home to attend college. Think about how we often equate distance with quality, and separation from family is viewed as a good thing. In fact, as I learned while working on this episode, new students who attend the University of Chicago literally cross through a gate onto campus while their family members have to remain on the other side. But for the students Corinne has been studying, leaving their families isn't always an option. One example that I think about in my research is a family where the eldest daughter is attending UCLA right now. She's currently in her second year, and her father works as a landscaper right around the same area as UCLA. And so this worked out really well for them because they're able to carpool to get her to school and to get him to work every day. But the problem is landscaping typically starts around 6 or 7 a.m., which is not the start time for most college students. But what they end up doing is the two of them will get up around 5 o'clock in the morning. They'll drive together. This student will be dropped off on campus. She'll spend her whole morning studying, and then she'll start her classes around midday along with most of her peers in college. Her father will finish his workday around 2 p.m., but she won't finish her classes or her after-class activities until 5 or 6. 
And then the two of them will commute home. In Southern California, if you're leaving around rush hour, is quite a long commute. But all this was really important to her. And the reason she decided to stay living at home and commuting instead of moving on campus is because one of her big responsibilities at home is taking care of her younger sister, who has just started kindergarten. And for her, no matter how long her day was going to be, it was really important to be home at the end of the day so that she could read her sister a bedtime story and put her to bed. Even though she had financial aid to allow her to live on campus without paying for dorming fees, she decided to live at home and commute so that she could at the very least be there to put her sister to bed at night. And it's not just location that looks different when viewed from within these mixed-status families. The attributes of what makes a school quote-unquote good change too. Not all colleges, as much as they might kind of proclaim to value diversity, are really prepared to support students and their families. And I do find that kind of more geographically localized colleges like the CSU system really understand their student population and what those needs are. If you go to your professor and ask where the food pantry is, they're more likely to know the answer than if you go to another university that is drawing students from all over the world, where there's just not this assumption that there might be other needs besides your kind of direct academic endeavors. And that's not to say that only CSUs do this. Lots of colleges are moving in that direction of of being better about serving the whole student and the whole family. But that is something else that I think is really important to think about when we're considering what makes for a good match or a good school. In fact, the more Corinne viewed higher education the way these students and their families do, the more flawed and limited the way we usually define the process started to seem, one in which individual strivers go off to college as a means of developing their human capital, the returns of which accrue to them and them alone. There's this idea that suddenly you stop being a part of a family or a part of a community when you graduate high school, which we all know is not the case. Technology has made it very possible to stay connected to your family, even if you do go far away. But there is something that we're kind of missing in my mind if we continue to think of going to college as simply a version of individual fulfillment. For the students in my research and the families in my research, college has always been a collective dream. This is something that you are doing for your family, for your community, and with your family and with your community. College is not something that you are doing by yourself. And so I think this is something that we really saw over the course of the pandemic as well, where even for students who always expected to go away from home, who had this idea that the college experience, in big scare quotes, meant being somewhere with a quad and you know Gothic architecture or something like that, And realizing that maybe that's not what it's about. Maybe college, like other forms of education, is about learning about yourself in conjunction with community and figuring out what role you want to play in the worlds that you inhabit. This is something that I think a lot about in the course of my research, too, which is why do students go to college? Why do families want to go to college as a collective project? Thinking about the choices that people make about where they go to school uh, has me thinking about some of the literature I've seen on cost, right? Cost of college and the impact that it has on the decisions that people make. And some of that research suggests that, um, and again, there's sort of a patronizing tone to a lot of this research in the same way that the research on college matching can be patronizing. Like these poor people don't know what's good for them. And the literature 
on the cost of college and people's understanding of the cost of college can suggest that these people making choices which result in them going to community colleges are doing so without sufficient information uh, and that they're being put off by the sticker price of four-year schools and therefore are much more likely to enroll in two-year schools. And we know that the likelihood of gaining a four-year degree if you start at a two-year school is lower just because of this systematic underfunding of community colleges. And so I'm just wondering if you can like enlighten us a little bit about how all of this may play out for immigrant students. The type of research that you're referencing falls under what I think of broadly as the kind of college knowledge literature. So financially, it is a part of that, this idea that people are not going to college because they don't know about their options. And I find that that's pretty much not true in the population that I work with. People see themselves going to college. Being a college goer has been a big part of their academic identity, stretching all the way back sometimes to kindergarten or even before kindergarten. And they do know about their different options in terms of financial aid and college. The problem is not knowing that those opportunities are out there. It's that it's actually very difficult to gain access to them. If you are someone with a social security number, you can apply through the FAFSA. That is the kind of main way that you apply for financial aid. But if you are a citizen living with undocumented parents, you have to manually fill it out. You have to be able to print out forms and physically sign them and mail them in. All of this kind of increases the complexity. And all of those students are increasingly likely to be subjected to verification, which is kind of like an auditing of your financial aid process. Researchers even have a catchy term to describe that thing that happens when students who are on track to go to college don't actually make it. They call it melting, something that Corinne says almost entirely misses the point. All of these hurdles involve lots of versions of being able to get in touch with your school, with your intended school. And those are all points in which students might get overwhelmed or frustrated and end up melting, which is the the term in the literature for college intending students who go through the application process and then don't end up on campus the following fall. That something happens between the time they apply and the time they matriculate. They are lost over the summer. They melt. But summer melt, I find, is actually kind of a result of these very difficult bureaucratic processes that students and their families need to undergo in order to access the aid that they're entitled to. When Corinne talks to people about her research, their first response is obviously, what's an ethnographer? But she also gets a lot of questions about whether everyone needs to go to college, especially when skilled trades pay so well. It's a question that she finds, well, revealing. I think a lot of people don't realize that to be a certified plumber, you have to get a degree that is usually granted through a community college. So that example actually just doesn't track. There are so many different jobs that people think of as not coming out of a college degree that actually do come out of a college degree, particularly at the community college level, which is a really powerful source of education for a lot of communities. In addition, I sort of think that not everyone has to go to college, but everyone can if they want to. And there are many reasons why someone might want to enroll in higher education. A large part of that is getting a job. And that is something that I think institutions of higher education need to be more responsible for, which is students want employment after they graduate. There is nothing anti-intellectual about wanting to feed your family. You can both be somebody who deeply values knowledge and your own development and also want a job that will allow you to support your loved ones. And those two things are not in conflict with one another. I generally find that people who tell me not everyone needs to go to college are people who went to college um, and people who expect their own children to go to college. And so I sort of question that divide as well, the division of opportunity that we're seeing. 
Now, these mixed-status families that Corinne has been studying are primarily working class, the very demographic whose views of higher education have tilted sharply negative as we've gotten more polarized as a country, and political identity is more and more likely to divide along education lines. But that turn against college doesn't seem to be happening among immigrants, at least not to the same degree. Corinne says that she's convinced that a fundamentally different view of college, not as an individual's experience, but as a collective enterprise, might explain that difference. Higher education is not just the individual's accomplishment. It is the whole family's accomplishment, particularly for students who are themselves U.S.-born citizens, whose parents immigrated from another country. A lot of them feel that going to college and achieving in terms of their academics is one way that they can repay the sacrifices that their family undertook as part of their migration journey. There are a whole bunch of sacrifices that are involved there. It might be something like really difficult journeys that family members took to cross into the United States. And I'll hear students talk about, you know, when my mom was my age, she was walking from Mexico to the U.S., for example. That is much harder than what I'm doing, which is filling out my FAFSA. And oftentimes we'll have conversations about you don't need to compare your own difficulties to those of your parents. But there is this deep sense that family members gave up a lot in order to provide opportunities to the next generation. This is something that we see documented a lot in the migration education literature, but it's usually from the caregiver side about the people who undertook those sacrifices and how they frame that in relation to futurity, in relation to providing opportunities for their children for future generations. Corinne's research contribution is to help us understand how students who grow up in mixed-status families understand and experience higher education. Yes, it's a world that's heavy with expectations. But that sense of collective responsibility and success is more than just an individual prerogative. Seems like something we could all learn from. One of the questions I had going into my research is, what does that feel like for the person who is the embodiment of that sacrifice? If you grow up with this idea that your family did all of these things to provide you with opportunity, what does that mean for you as a student moving through all of the challenges and successes that we know come with going through K through 20 education? And so that is actually a big motivator for a lot of students, this idea that they want to repay their parents' sacrifices. In addition, there is kind of a recreation of that generational mindset where when students are encountering challenges in higher education, the thought is often, I'm going to go through this. I'm going to learn something from it. And the people who come after me, my siblings, my cousins, my future students, if I become an educator, you know, my own children, they won't have to do that as well. And they'll be able to access all of the wonders of learning without having to undergo the same difficulties that I did. That was Corinne Kentor, the runner-up in our 2022 Graduate Student Research Contest. She's also a PhD candidate at Teachers College, Columbia University. Congrats to Corinne and our other contest finalists. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about anything but the midterms and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. NAEP scores. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a subscriber. So, Jack, can I just say what a relief it was to work on an episode that was not only interesting and informative, but had absolutely nothing to do with the midterms? (laughs) 
you never know. We might draw a connection here at the close, Jennifer. <laughs> well, in addition to getting to hear Corinne and her excellent project, I'm actually going to get to meet her um, a couple weeks after this episode drops um, as part of my effort to speak and participate in as many panel discussions as possible. <laughs> That's you're you are not at risk of overexposure. You're already at peak exposure. So I am going to be um, I'm going to be participating in an event at the that the National Academy of Education is putting on, and um, Corinne is actually one of their Spencer dissertation fellows. So she's going to be there, and that's going to be my the first contest winner that I've actually gotten to meet in person. And you're both going to be someplace super fancy. So. Very, very. We're going to be in in our nation's capital, and here's how ridiculous it is. I'm giving one talk earlier in the day, and then somehow in ten minutes, I have to make it across town to my next panel. It's that these are the trials and tribulations of someone who is so in demand, Jennifer. And you're teaching a class at Yale. You, your your status has just gone from. From, well, I won't say what it was previously, but you've peaked. And just listeners, please make a note. I was not the one who mentioned where I'm teaching. That was Jack <laughs> Which, that did that. But it's that. always in your eyes. I can always see Yale blue in your eyes these days. You don't even well, have blue eyes. Well, anyway, my my original point was that I, you know, I'm sure everyone in the listening audience feels the same way that the the political debate, if you can even call it a debate right now, is just excruciating. And so I'm pleased to get a little bit of a, of a breather from everything midterm related. But I also know that that for the foreseeable future, perhaps forever, education is going to be at the absolute center of our highly polarized, highly politicized conversation, and so we need to we need to steal ourselves for what's ahead. <laughs> this feels like uh, some sort of elaborate trap that leads to me responding to you and you saying, "Well, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Jack, because uh, there's a paywall over here that people should step right up to, and we've set up a ladder that will help them over it that requires only that they empty their pockets before climbing." You really sound like a pro. It's like there's I have no moves left that are <laughs> that can surprise you. <laughs> Gone. Well, so it sounds to me like you are very eager to find out the topic of this episode's in the weed segment. Is that the case? So eager, Jennifer. I I cannot wait to get out of this free space where we have the regular portion of our show which I prepare for and get into the uh, premium space where I never quite know what's coming and you don't let me edit my audio. Well, I did not give you a heads up about this topic because I happen to know that it's one that you have many opinions on. Two words. Are you ready? Falafel sandwich. Nape scores. Oh, wow. Just, <laughs> that's e even better. All right. Let's do it. So um, I think the the conversation is actually taking some interesting turns, and I thought it might be it might be a good opportunity to unpack some of those. So that's what we're going to be discussing in the weeds. If this interests you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, and you'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by supporting us to the tune of a few dollars each month. Things like a custom reading list and 
access to a special area that we call in the weeds where Jack has not done any preparation. There is no editing. And yet somehow he's even more delightful than usual. (laughs) Uh, I guess, I guess I can't, I can't try to undermine that. Um, Pay whatever she wants you to pay, folks, and go over to this um, very special place. That's it. That's all I'm going to do this week. You're not even going to do that thing where you encourage people to share the show? (laughs) Well, the puppet master has pulled the strings, so let me say that uh, if you all are looking for other ways to support the show... There are many of them. Uh, Make sure that you are a subscriber so that the latest episode automatically downloads wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, If you're not already a subscriber, go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you can possibly download. Uh, Make sure that you give us a review. Uh, Jennifer prefers five stars. She's a quantitative person. I prefer reading your qualitative feedback. Uh, Let people know that you're listening. We have a Twitter handle, at least for now, until Elon Musk uh, unleashes the legions of trolls that may lead to the Twitter handle migrating to a new platform. But for now, we're at Have You Heard Pod. Uh, We love seeing you share episodes with folks uh, over that platform, again, for the time being. And uh, we love the mailbag. We've gotten lots of great ideas for episodes from you. Uh, And it's also just nice to hear from you all out there. On that note, congratulations to the winners of this year's Graduate Student Research Contest and to our runner-up. Keep an eye out for information about the next round of the competition. I'm guessing that it'll, it'll be even more fevered than in the past. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 